Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, The New Center. Spread over three pages in Volume 3 of his monumental work, The History of the Christian Church, author Philip Schaff makes a compelling argument for why it was inevitable Christianity would eventually emerge from the Roman catacombs to join the state in governing the hearts and lives of the people of the empire. And while it was inevitable, Schaff describes how the merger resulted in the corruption of the church. He wrote, quote, The Christianizing of the state amounted in great measure to the paganizing and secularizing of the church, unquote. We've already seen how the church at Rome emerged to become a headquarters of Western Christianity. We need to spend a little more time here, as this period of church history is crucial for understanding the eventual rift that occurred between the East and the West, and what emerged in Europe after this, not only for the church, but for the nations that arose there. The idea of the rule of the entire church by the Roman Pope was a slow and halting process. The title Pope or Papa wasn't important to the emergence of the Bishop of Rome as the leader of the church. It was a term of affection that had been used by many Christians for their pastor and was used in a more formal sense in Alexandria decades before it was used of the Roman bishop. It wasn't until the 6th century that the word Pope was reserved exclusively for Rome's bishop, long after he'd already claimed primacy as Peter's successor. It's important as well that we make a distinction between the honor that the Roman church held and the overarching authority that its bishop later claimed. There's ample evidence of the respect accorded Rome's Christian community. Rome was, after all, the capital of the empire. The church there was the largest and richest. By the mid-third century, it claimed some 30,000 members, served by 150 priests, supporting 1,500 widows and the poor. It also had a long record of remaining orthodox and generous. For these reasons, it was regarded as the lead church of Western Europe. Though there's no solid historical evidence to support it, Christians of the 2nd through 4th centuries believed that Peter and Paul had founded the church at Rome. It was thought that each bishop of Rome handed his authority and office to his successor so that the current pope, whoever that was, was sitting in the apostolic seat of Peter. We can see why this would be important to the church when the Gnostics were a threat to the faith. They claimed to possess special secret knowledge and traditions that had been passed on by Jesus to the apostles and then to them. In contrast to this fiction, Rome could actually name their bishops all the way back to the original apostles. This list was memorized by young believers like state capitals are memorized by students today. While the church at Rome was regarded with great respect by most believers, this honor didn't always extend to its bishop. There is much evidence of the church fathers like Irenaeus and Cyprian who disagreed vehemently with positions that were taken by the Bishop of Rome. Until Constantine, there's no evidence that the church at large took direction from Rome's lead pastor. It's important at this point to speak about the changes that took place in the structure of the churches during the 3rd and 4th centuries. This change came about for two reasons, the councils and archbishops. The first development that led to an alteration in the way that churches developed was church councils. As the church grew and individual congregations developed in more places, leaders of the church recognized the need to coordinate 
their efforts, and their teaching. The emergence of heretics prompted elders and pastors to gather to discuss how to address the challenge of this false teaching. These gatherings were at first informal and irregular, called at random by provincial leaders. In the 3rd century, they began meeting annually in more formal councils, well, to share news and establish policy that would be observed in each church. These provincial councils proved so helpful, in the 4th century, several provinces started sending their bishops to larger regional councils. When Constantine became emperor and the churches faced major obstacles, the call was sent out for all of the bishops to meet. The first such general or ecumenical council was held in 314 at Arles, although only the Western church leaders were called. The first true all-church council was held at Nicaea, not far from Constantinople in 325, and dealt with the threat of Arianism. The findings of these general councils became the rule for the churches. The second development that helped shape the church was the emergence of archbishops. During the provincial and regional councils, all bishops were supposed to be equals. But in practice, some of the older bishops and those that led larger, older, and more respected churches were held in higher regard. Also, as the church grew, it tended to locate first in urban centers, then reached out to the surrounding rural countryside where smaller churches sprang up, usually led by pastors sent out by the pastors of the nearest urban center. It was natural that these rural pastors looked to their sending church as their spiritual home and their sending pastor as their spiritual leader. In other words, rural bishops looked to urban bishops as an archbishop. He might then look in turn to some other bishop of an even larger church closer to Rome or Alexandria, Antioch, or Constantinople as his spiritual overseer. So, while all bishops were theoretically equal, practically they related to one another in a more hierarchical way, a hierarchy based on the size and prominence of the church and city where the bishop served. You can see where this is going, can't you? Put church councils attended by archbishops together with the church suddenly given access to imperial favor, and it's a proverbial Pandora's box of political scheming. The move of the empire's political capital from Rome to Constantinople in 330 shifted the center of political gravity 900 miles east. Because location and proximity to political power had become increasingly important, suddenly, Constantinople was added to the list of Christian centers, and the bishop of Constantinople became another major player. When Theodosius became emperor in 379 and made Christianity the official state religion, church politics moved to a whole new level. Hundreds of people feigned conversion and entered the church merely to gain political advantage. As we tracked in an earlier episode in May of 381, Emperor Theodosius convened a general council in Constantinople, but only called the Eastern bishops to attend it. Bishop Damasus of Rome wasn't even invited. Theodosius wanted to close the book on Arianism, and so he convened the council to endorse and ratify the Nicene Creed. The Eastern bishops decided to use this council to raise their political coin by also ruling that the Bishop of Constantinople was second only to the Bishop of Rome in terms of authority. They based this on the premise that Constantinople was the new Rome. Damasus recognized this for what it was, a political power play. 
He and the other Western bishops responded in their own council held a year later that Rome's prominence wasn't due to its proximity to the capital, but to its historic connection to Peter and Paul. It was from this council at Rome in 382 that the church first claimed the primacy of the Roman church based on Jesus' supposed remark that he would build his church on Peter. It was obvious by the end of the 4th century that East and West were headed in very different directions. The Eastern Church, with its center at Constantinople, became increasingly tied to imperial power. In the West, things were dramatically different. Imperial power and presence were dissolving. The Church wasn't only untying from political structures. As those structures themselves dissolved, the Church was increasingly looked to by the common people to provide governance. After Damasus, the Roman bishop most responsible for the emergence of the papal office was Leo the Great. Leo was a nobleman and politician who was made bishop of Rome when Sextus III died in A.D. 440. Leo's 21-year term as pope saw some of Rome's most tumultuous years. He drew on themes already in place to support his primacy over the entire church. Okay, it's at this point that I need to say that we're going to deviate from our usual course and toss out some things that may upset our Roman Catholic friends. But this is a period of church history that speaks specifically to the issue of the primacy of the papacy. Trust me, when we get to later church history, we're going to have a lot of tough stuff to look at regarding the Protestants. Leo's claim to primacy and that the Roman Pope was the spiritual successor to Peter as leader of the church, based as that was largely on Matthew 16, where Jesus tells Peter that he'd build his church on the rock, seems to fly in the face of Jesus's quite clear teaching that in the church the great are not to ape the world's patterns of power and rule. The great are to serve. As Bruce Shelley notes in his marvelous church history in plain language, the primacy of Peter as leader of the church is difficult to glean from Matthew 16 when just a few verses later, Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him Satan. Peter denied the Lord at his trial and even after the filling with the Holy Spirit recorded in Acts 2, The Apostle Paul rebuked him for being a poor example. Another reason to question the primacy of Peter and the apostolic succession of the popes is to ask, where in the Bible does Jesus commission Peter to a role as Bishop of Rome? While Peter certainly went to Rome, there's nothing to suggest he was ever the head of the church there. He was martyred and buried, but that's a far cry from ever being a bishop of the Roman fellowship. From a simple historical perspective, until the time of Damasus and Leo, while Rome's bishop was certainly regarded as a major leader, he wasn't considered the leader of the entire church. The evidence makes it clear that both Damasus and Leo were astute enough to see that with Christianity's imperial acceptance, power would aggregate in fewer and fewer locations. Those locations were Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. Rome was the only city in the West. The other three were in the East. And with the political center now being in the East, Rome knew that it faced the very real threat of becoming irrelevant, as the church at Jerusalem already had. So the bishops of Rome played their trump card. They were the one church to whom the names Peter and Paul had, well, some historical connection. In our next episode, we'll see how Leo the Great helped fix Rome as the center of the faith. 
Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.